Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. The event in today's story occurred in 1946. But what else happened that year? Well, on the 15th of February, American dance craze, the Jitterbug, sweeps through Britain. On the 31st of May, London Heathrow Airport opened fully for civilian use. On the 7th of October, the BBC Light programme transmits the first episode of the daily radio magazine programme Women's Hour, which was initially presented by Alan Ivimi, which will still be running more than 70 years later. And on the 11th of November, Stevenage, a village in Hertfordshire, is designated by the Attlee government as Britain's first new town to relieve overcrowding and replace bombed homes in London. The new town is set to have around 60,000 residents once it's completed and the first homes are expected to be ready by 1952, and the town fully developed by the early 1960s. The town's centrepiece will be a revolutionary, pedestrianised central shopping area. And in the dock was Rosina Ann Cornock, aged 34, accused of murdering her husband, Cecil George Cornock, also aged 34, at their home in Wellington Park Place, West Henleys, Bristol on December 7th, 1946. They had been married since 1933 and had a little boy, aged 10. During the opening statement by the prosecution, it was mentioned that a frequent visitor to the house was a man called Gilbert Kenneth Bedford, aged 24. Gilbert was described as a clerk living at 3 Midford Road, Bath, and he explained to the court how he had been suffering from arthritis for 12 years, making it difficult for him to walk without sticks. He admitted that three letters found in the house were written by him to Rosina, and a further six were from Rosina to him. He explained how, on August 6, 1946, he met Rosina at the funeral of her niece, Miss Pauline Keeling. Three weeks later... Rosina invited him to have tea at her house, and he accepted. That was the first time he met Cecil Cornock and their son, Maurice. 
After that, he was a regular visitor. Word of the week. Brace yourselves, guys, because this week's offering is... Coddywomple, which is to travel in a purposeful manner in a vague direction. Sounds like the story of my life. Twenty-four-year-old Gilbert would often stay overnight or even weekends in the Cornock house, sleeping downstairs on the sofa. And this particular visit started on Friday the 6th of December 1946. On the 8th of December, an ambulance was called for and Rosina told the paramedics that she'd found her husband dead in the bath at 11pm and that, with the help of a friend, she'd moved him to the front bedroom. She described how she had run her husband a bath before going downstairs and chatting with Gilbert until 11pm. It was then that she thought her husband had been taking too long, so she went up and found him lying with his head underwater. After getting out of the bath, she tried artificial respiration until a doctor and some police officers arrived. In court, the police said that they found a jumper and skirt both damp in the lounge. Rosina explained that before she called for an ambulance, she changed as she didn't want to go out in damp clothes. At 5.20am, Detective Superintendent Carter went to the house to take a statement in writing, which Rosina signed, during which she said, Almost immediately after we were married, my husband disclosed that he was a sexual pervert. He used to walk about the house naked. He had a very bad temper, and unless I carried out his wishes, he used to get violent with me. Occasionally, he struck me and pushed me down. Sometimes he would bring a portable electric boiler from the kitchen into the dining room and dressed in women's clothes and insisted on my tying him to the boiler. I also had to whip him with a cane. The widow Rosina went on to describe a scene that took place on December the 6th, the day Gilbert arrived. She noticed that Gilbert had been watching from a cupboard under the stairs, where it was possible to look through a window into the lounge. He had watched as she had whipped her husband. The police asked for the rope Rosina said she tied her husband up with, and she produced three pieces. They were wet, and she said he had dropped them into a bowl last night. She then went on to demonstrate how she tied her husband up. The body of Cecil Cornock was examined by the pathologist who found abrasions and bruises on the head, the backs of both shoulders, both elbows and the small of the back, all of which occurred before he died. The doctor said that the head injury was not sufficient to cause unconsciousness but would have been enough to stun Gilbert. He went on to say, 
The injuries were not consistent with the explanation given by the accused. They were not consistent with the man's head having come into contact with some hard surface. The injuries on the ankles and the lower parts of the leg and ribs are entirely consistent with the man having had his limbs tied. Some of the injuries could have been caused if the man had had his hands tied behind his back while laying in the bath and his legs held or tied while he was struggling violently. Mr Palling for the prosecution continued... I submit that quite clearly there is no evidence whatever here to justify any conclusion that he committed suicide. Mrs Cornock had suggested right from the start that he died accidentally. The medical evidence, without any other evidence whatsoever, will I submit prove conclusively that the injuries sustained by this man were not caused by accident, and they were not caused by the manner described by this woman. I submit that Cornock died as the result of a deliberate attack upon him. The prosecution submit that the accused tied up her husband in the bath, perhaps at his own request, and after he was tied up, he was struck over the head at least six blows with a flat, blunt instrument, thus succeeding in bringing about his death by drowning. The blows on his head were consistent with having been caused by the toy boat found in the bathroom. Although they can be definitive about the toy boat as there was no evidence on it, the scientists and doctors did examine it and determined that it did fit the wounds inflicted. The young man involved in this tale, Gilbert Bedford, developed a leg ulcer sometime in October and Rosina started to dress it for him four times a day. For this reason, he stayed there at one point for eight weeks. He was questioned in court by the prosecution. Did you become fond of Mrs Cornock? Yes. Are these sentiments in these letters your true sentiments towards her? Yes. Does she, or does she not, return your affection? Yes. In a way. Gilbert described how he was in the lounge when he heard strange noises coming from the direction of the breakfast room. What sort of strange noises? Like the swishing of a stick. He said when he heard the noises, he went to the cupboard under the stairs and looked through the window into the breakfast room. Rosina had told him about this vantage point. There, he saw Mr Cornock in woman's clothes, tied to the boiler by his hands and feet. Rosina was seen hitting him with a stick, and Mr Cornock was gagged with a handkerchief. Why did you go and look through the window on that Friday evening? I was curious. When Gilbert told Rosina that what he had witnessed was wicked, she replied, He makes me do worse than that. Later, he heard the pair go upstairs, and then, about ten minutes after that, he heard Rosina's footsteps. As she had been coming down the stairs, Gilbert heard Cecil talking from the bathroom, muffled, as if through a gag. Whatever Cecil had said, Rosina's firm reply was no. Rosina returned to the lounge. He asked her what Cecil had made her do, and she replied... Sit down and forget about it. And now, my friends, it's time for this week's instalment of our Big Bristol to London Stroll. The Big Bristol to London the Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. The Big Bristol to London Stroll. Hello and welcome to the Big Bristol to London Stroll. 
where we take you along the scenic routes via canals on a gentle walk to our capital. Along the way, we'll discuss the places we see and anything we spot that takes our fancy. Sometimes, we're even joined along the way by family and friends. So come join us as we take the big stroll. On such a lovely day, we started off at Bradford-on-Avon. And as you notice, whilst you're walking past there, it's a lot busier. That's because Barton Farm Country Park is just to the side. And it's a delightful 36-acre countryside facility that's bounded by the River Avon and the Kennet and Avon Canal. And it offers something for everyone. Walking, rowing, fishing, nature study, or just relaxing with a picnic by the River Avon. The park was acquired by Wiltshire Council in 1971 and is open to visitors all year round free of charge. You can also rummage about in the craft shops in the outbuildings next to the huge Tithe Barn, which is still standing after 600 years. The Tithe Barn was used by wealthy landowners to collect tithes or taxes from the people of Bradford and Avon. This would be paid in the form of produce and livestock. The building has been restored and has one of the largest stone roofs in Europe. Some of the scenes from the movie version of Chaucer's Canterbury Tales were shot here. Built in the early 14th century, produce would be brought to the barn across the 14th century Packhorse Bridge, which was built especially for that purpose. Now, if you like strolling around homes and gardens, then go along to the Eiford Manor Estate nearby. This year, they will be having a socially distanced mini music festival from the 2nd to the 5th of July, where you can be serenaded to classical or jazz concerts each night, whilst relaxing on your picnic rug in the lovely gardens. It's worth noting that the Cloister and Summer House have reopened following extensive restoration work, which won the Historic Houses of 2020 Restoration Award in association with Sotheby's. And now it's a seven kilometre walk to our next stop of Trowbridge. While Gilbert and Rosina were downstairs in the lounge, he could hear Cecil upstairs in the bath. Then, an hour later, Rosina went upstairs and called him to come immediately. When he entered the bathroom, he saw Cecil lying in the bath, which was full to overflowing. Cecil's head was resting against the side of the bath and his nose was in the water, and both feet were out of the water and his hands were tied behind his back. After the pair managed to get him out of the bath, Rosina grabbed a pair of scissors and cut the rope binding the hands. She then said... You better not mention about the cord. No one will understand his carryings on. Once on the floor, they decided there wasn't enough room in the bathroom to give artificial respiration. So they dragged him head first along the floor on his back. As we were trying to get him into the bedroom, I struck his head very hard against the side of the door. After wrapping Cecil in a sheet, Gilbert went downstairs and made some tea. He asked Rosina to have some and sit quietly, as she was looking faint. Eventually, she left to call the ambulance whilst Gilbert waited by the front gate for them to arrive. That happened 20 minutes later. During the wait, he said to Rosina, If they should question you, 
I don't say I was here all day. Say that I had just called for the weekend this same evening. A wax head was produced to demonstrate the injuries Cecil had received, and Rosina looked on as the pathologist explained that the black marks on the model's head were the locations of the injuries and could not have been made in the way suggested by the defendant. Apparently, when the doctor arrived to examine the body at the house, he noticed various injuries and had asked Rosina about them. She said she thought they must have happened when they were trying to get Cecil out of the bath. On further examination, he said he formed the opinion that death had occurred at least four hours before he had arrived. The ambulance driver who was first on the scene told the court how Rosina had said her husband had a bad cold and wanted a hot bath before bed, and how her friend had turned up just after her husband went up to the bathroom. Rosina's statement to PC Frederick Buckland, who had arrived at the house at 1.25am, was read out in court. Last night, my husband went up to a bath, and afterwards, Mr Bedford came in. We went into the lounge and sat talking for some time. Then I remembered that my husband had not called for the drink which I had arranged to take up for him. I said I would go up and see if anything was the matter. I went upstairs and opened the bathroom door. The room was full of steam. I went over and turned off the pilot's jet. Then I saw my husband's feet and legs were lying one on either side of the top end of the bath. Then I saw that his head was turned against the wall and his face was underwater. I felt his pulse, which had stopped. I called out to Mr Bedford. He came up the stairs slowly because he was crippled. Then we tried to lift my husband out of the bath. During the proceedings, PC Buckland also mentioned how Rosina had asked to speak to him privately about her husband's nerves. In the dining room, with the door closed, she then told him how, during their 13 years of marriage, they had not lived a normal life. She said that her husband was peculiar in his sexual outlook and that she had to do things for him. She mentioned how she had to tie him to the boiler and beat him, as well as administer enemas to him. She then proceeded to show them a suitcase, which was under the sideboard in the dining room. That's my husband's suitcase. He takes it with him wherever he goes. There are things in it. He keeps it locked and doesn't let me touch it. Rosina then retrieved the keys from her husband's jacket and the case was opened. Inside was a paper carrier containing a blue dress, a pair of knickers, a corset, a bra and some stockings as well as two bottles of tablets. Rosina told the officers that her husband kept a room in London where he used those things. In court, her demeanour under cross-examination was defiant, as she admitted that she had not loved her husband, but that they were perfectly civil to one another up to the time of his death. She was asked about a signed statement in which she said that there had been no sexual relationship with her husband for several years. She clarified that sex was rare and the last time was two weeks before his death. 
What she didn't know at the time she said this was that she was already pregnant. Before the jury were allowed to contemplate a verdict, the judge said... Nobody saw Mr Cornock step into the bath. Nobody saw him lie down in the water. Nobody knows except the person who went in and saw him first lying in the water, whether his legs and hands were tied or not. By looking at all of the circumstances, I think you ought to be in a position to come to a conclusion about this matter. However upset a woman may be at seeing her husband in such a perilous position, could she have been so upset as to fail to lift his head out of the water at once? After four days at the Bristol Assizes, charged with her husband's murder, the jury pronounced her not guilty on Friday the 7th of March, 1947. The judge could not make any further comment on the statement, apart from the two words, discharger. She was hurried away from the angry crowd outside the front of the building and taken to her mother's house in Northampton Street, Bath. She smiled as her son, who had been playing in the snow in a nearby field, rushed towards her in glee. Immediately after the verdict, Rosina took her son, Morris, and went down to Bournemouth, where she was joined by her mother, Mrs Keeling, and two of her sisters. Gilbert, meanwhile, gave notice at the Bath Register Office on the day after the trial finished of his intention to marry Rosina. But Rosina's solicitor, Mr R. A. Ingle, said that the notice of marriage, which Mr Bedford had given, is entirely without Rosina's consent or knowledge. She also said that she wasn't interested in him and her friendship with him had finished. Later, Rosina returned to Bath where she gave birth to a girl in the autumn of 1947. Gilbert Kenneth Bedford died in October 1997, in Bath, at the age of 75. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Zach. It's Josh. Zach. Do you enjoy video games, drinking, and attempting to solve the world's problems through ridiculous schemes? Uh, yeah. Do you think others would enjoy that? I mean, I really hope so. So do I. So I think you all should come spend some time with us, the Midwest Meltdown. This show was created by these two fine gentlemen here, myself and Zach, when we spent the last 14 years telling each other funny stories, talking about video games, and literally anything else that comes to mind. We wanted to turn our passion for gaming into something that we could share with everyone. So again, follow us, The Midwest Meltdown, anywhere you can find your podcasts. That's Spotify, Apple Music, Podbean, Google Pods. Check us out. We'd be happy to have you. In the news today... The British Wildlife Commission have addressed the question, why do seagulls fly over the sea? Because if they flew over the bay, they'd be called bagels. Back in the day facts. start with the 5th of June, which is World Environment Day. 
devoted to raising public awareness of environmental issues and encouraging political action to protect the environment. On the 6th of June in 1949, the novel 1984 by George Orwell was published. On the 8th of June in 1968, James Earl Ray was arrested in London for the murder of US clergyman, civil rights leader and Nobel Prize winner Martin Luther King Jr. On the 10th of June in 1909, the Cunard liner Slovenia became the first to use the SOS distress signal after it was wrecked off the Azores. Anne Frank was born on the 12th of June 1929 in Frankfurt, the daughter of a Jewish industrialist. The family moved to Amsterdam in 1933 and on her 13th birthday, 12th of June 1942, and received the diary that was to make the remainder of her tragically short life so well known. She wrote her first entry in the diary that day. I hope I shall be able to confide in you completely, as I have never been able to do in anyone before, and I hope that you will be a great support and comfort to me. The final entry in the diary is dated the 1st of August 1944, three days before Anne and her family were betrayed, arrested and deported. Anne and her sister Margot died in the Bergen-Belsen concentration camp in March 1945. Their mother, Edith, had died two months earlier in the women's camp at Auschwitz. Their father, Otto Frank, survived and edited the diary for publication in 1947. Since then, it's been published in more than 50 languages and read by millions worldwide. I'm afraid that's the end of another episode, but I would be interested to find out what you thought of the verdict in the main story. And as always, a huge thank you has to go out to the real stars of the show, and those are the people who brought the story to life. We have Carrie Ball and Joe Wilson from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Steve Shepherd, Henry Arnold and Marcus KP from your very own Bradley Stoke Radio. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk By the way, the tune in the background? That's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>